They got out of Darien the year that I moved to college. And I have to say that that's a little heartbreaking because I felt like I was responsible for it. No matter how many times they'll tell me, no, no, you need to go, like, go do what you need to do. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Welcome back to the Real Food, Real People podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and I'm glad you're here. Hopefully things are going well if you're self-isolating and and keeping to yourself, as I hope we all are right now, uh, keeping everyone as safe and healthy as possible. Uh, This week, uh, we hear from a young woman who is studying at Central Washington University, just about to get her environmental resource geography degree. She grew up on a Washington State dairy farm, and the perspective that she brings from her academics as well as her life experience growing up on a farm is really, really valuable, I think, as far as what's happening in the state politically and with the environment and with farming. So I'm glad you're here for this conversation this week. Her name is Lydia Johnson, and as I mentioned on Real Food, Real People Instagram uh, over the weekend, I actually met her at a bar. I know it sounds weird. I was just driving through Washington. I was in Little Kittitas, Washington, and stopped in to what I thought was this really cool old-timey restaurant and bar, the Time Out Saloon, and she was working behind the counter, and we just happened to chat a little bit, and I, and I found out that she grew up on a farm. And so we talked a little bit more, and I thought, you know, she's got to be on the podcast and share her perspective and her story. Such cool stuff. So thank you for being here. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. If you can, subscribe on your favorite podcast outlet, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it. And of course, check out realfoodrealpeople.org. So without any further ado, here's Lydia Johnson and our conversation this week on the Real Food, Real People podcast, my continuing journey around various parts of Washington state to get to know the real people behind our food and the real culture of farming and food here in Washington state. We think it's more important now with everything that's happening than ever before to know not only where your food comes from and to get food grown locally and from Washington state, but also to know who grows your food and to understand the care and respect that goes into it. So I'm sitting in a bar, strike up a conversation with the bartender, you and you're right, yep. <laughs> telling me that you grew up as a dairy farm kid. Yeah, yeah. So born and raised on a dairy farm, um, originally starting down in Vancouver, Washington. Um, my dad got into dairy farming, had to pick up and move the entire dairy up into the raging, booming town of Ethel, Washington, where I say, oh yeah, I'm from Ethel. And they're like... What? <laughs> Bethel? No, Ethel, Washington. Population, where, our dairy farm, and a post office. Where is Ethel, Washington? Um, southwest Washington-ish, right off of Highway 12 on your way over White Pass or okay. yeah. about 10 miles off of um, 
I-5. Yeah. So if I'm explaining it to somebody, I'll be like, okay, do you know where Olympia is? And they'll say, yes. Okay, do you know where Centralia is? Okay, 45 minutes southeast of there. And they're like, oh, okay, no right where that is. So I've probably driven right past it. So So what? Tell me about the dairy. Like how many cows did you guys have? Was this your whole life? Yes. So um, we started out as a conventional dairy farm. And um, as I was growing up, we eventually made the transition into an organic dairy. And we were milking from, we began at like 400 cows. And then when we got to an organic dairy, we were only milking about 160. And so this was only my mother, father, and I. And we were the only ones doing it. We didn't have any hired hands. We didn't have any any help it was just it was just the three of us and at the time like I didn't know it was weird or abnormal to just be us three running this dairy this little 12 year old girl and then my both my parents had full-time jobs and so we were just making making it work and so they would wake up early 3 30 4 30 in the morning my job was to bring in the cows so I'd I would always be looking for an excuse to go out and ride my horse. So I'd saddle mm. my horse in the barn early in the morning and go out and bring the cows in. My dad would always yell, don't run the girls. Don't make them run. <laughs> Just walk them. I'm like, God, Dad, come on, let me go. But, you know, after I got a little bit older, I understood. So, so you on, wanted to be a cowboy yeah, is oh, what yeah. you're saying. Oh, yeah. I was or a cowboy. Cowgirl. Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I grew up kind of in this weird dynamic where it's like, I wasn't really raised to be like a cowboy or cowgirl and do like the rodeo thing because I grew up on a dairy farm and like dairy farmers, they don't, they're dairy farmers and you show in the, <laughs> you show at the dairy farm, you know, you show at the fair and the yep. 4-H and the FFA, which I did that too, but I was also involved heavily into like junior rodeo and high school rodeo and things like that as well. So it's kind of a strange dynamic, but um, it's definitely a childhood that made me who I am and mm. Um, I'm forever grateful to my parents just because like all these other students that I was going to school with or things like that, they had just woken up at eight thirty in the morning and I'd already had half a day on them, you know, and, um, just having that experience really impacted me as a person and it has given me a little bit more of a, I think I would say an upper hand, <laughs> definitely an upper hand, but Upper hand, how? As far as like maturity levels and responsibilities and caring for another creature that isn't a human, you know, it's it's a different a different dynamic to something um, you're raising calves or you're feeding heifers or just these different aspects of growing up on a dairy create, I don't know, just more fulfilling, I would say, probably more fulfilling life. Were you ever frustrated with all that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> easy, easy. Um, I would always think, like, what would it be like to have, like, a normal childhood, like, growing up in a suburb or something like that? And, like, thinking back on that, I was like, what was I thinking? Why would I ever wonder something like that? I know what it would be like. Miserable. <laughs> Not necessarily, but, you know, um, Definitely. When did that change? When did you switch from being like, this is just a whole bunch of work to starting to really value it? Well, when I was in middle school, I was probably like, I'd been enslaved for that long. You know, I'd been <laughs> enslaved for that long already feeding calves. And it wasn't, it, was, it didn't feel like slavery at the time, but you yeah. know, it was something that I had to wake up and do every morning and every Saturday, Sunday, holiday, everything. So my friends would be out you know, and they'd have sleepovers or something, but I'd have to get picked up early because I'd have to come home and feed calves or something like that, something yeah. 
or just something small. But when I got into high school, I really started appreciating it because it kind of made me a little bit more uh, mindful of like time management and how to execute all the things that I needed to get done within the day. But I worked them around milking schedules. So that was really interesting too. Not very many students had to deal with that. What was the milking schedule on the farm? Usually we would milk at like 6 o'clock in the morning and then milk at 6 o'clock in the evening, if not earlier, because it depend on how early I could get out and get the cows in. Because sometimes things don't always go in go the right way and um we had a small dairy so a lot of things went wrong like pumps weren't working or something would freeze or the parlors flooded one morning just small weird things that probably don't happen on i don't know i guess larger farms i don't know <laughs> i think they happen everywhere yeah i would guess i would to. say so too i guess <clears throat> murphy's law you know if yeah. it can break it, it will, will. <laughs> yeah i know absolutely absolutely so why did why did your parents have to move the dairy east? And at what point in your life was that? I was, I think I was only two or three. So you probably don't really remember. Yeah, I don't really. Well, I remember, so we were leasing some property from, um, from a gentleman down in Vancouver, Washington. And my dad had already started the herd and started milking down here in Vancouver. And then um, they had sold the dairy before our lease was up. And so my dad had started like, frantically shopping for another dairy you so know they like sold it out from underneath right it. yeah and so this wow. and i was pretty young when this happened and so i think the indian tribe is where it ended up and so mm. there's a new casino down there like alani or something like that mm -hmm. that is where our dairy was really <laughs> yeah so that's kind of a bittersweet deal but mm -hmm. um there's a couple dairies um up in the county where i grew up lewis county um that were available at the time and there's one in on Alaska and one in Ethel and the one in Ethel was home. We moved there in 2000. So everybody still refers to it if they've lived there long enough as the old Duryea Dairy because that's who lived there before us. And they're like, mm -hmm. oh, you live at the old Duryea Dairy? I'm like, that was 20 years ago, but yeah. <laughs> well, both, both of my grandparents were in, both sets of my grandparents were in dairy farming. Okay. And to me and to a lot of people, they're their farms and they're still there. I actually own the, the like home place of my my mom's parents. Oh, that's amazing. Place. But to the real old timers, there's somebody cuz they bought they them from other people, mm -hmm. you know, Sam Byama. Wait, oh, that was the, you know, and and I can't remember I'm Blinders Dairy was was my grandpa Hankoops later. So I totally get that and that kind of stuff carries on when the same family can't mm -hmm. keep doing it. For sure. Did you think about staying with dairy? Um, you know, I actually did, but what I really wanted to do was I wanted to bring dairying back to the Ellensburg Valley. And this was mm. kind of like a, an idea that lasted for maybe six months or something like that. <laughs> it didn't last that long because, yeah. um, the technology that I w was wanting to get into was something that probably wouldn't be that attainable for me as an individual. And I'd have to find other people that are gung-ho about it as much as I am. I was like, yeah. oh yeah, I'll get a robotic milker because I like mm -hmm. to travel a lot and I like to go do these things and I ride horses and I'm doing, all, you know, things like that. But um, there aren't any dairies in the valley anymore. And so that was really strange to me when I moved here that there wasn't like the local dairy or, you know, something right. small, you know, it, anything. But well, that would make it harder 
to run a dairy farm here, right? Because there's no like dairy support businesses here. Absolutely. And there was somebody that had told me that it was because of um, trucks not making it up here from Sunnyside because that's where Dairy Gold Plant is or Hmm. something like um, the restrictions on waste management um, because a lot county is definitely turning a leaf in its political stance Mm -hmm. so so and i guess we're talking about the ellensburg area now and like the valley yeah we mentioned earlier i met you at this bar at kittitas Mm -hmm. where you're bartending and i just stopped in for a bite to eat and so here we are we're actually recording out here behind the bar in the empty beer garden there's snow on the ground yes Actually, yeah. <laughs> and so if you hear cars or trains in the background, <laughs> that's We're why. We're outside, so. <laughs> so that, uh, the reason I mention that is, how did you end up here from growing up down there in Ethel? I know, it's a big transition from small town of Ethel to the small town <laughs> of Kittitas. I mean, um, well, so I was looking at colleges and I had gone to... Um, I'd done plenty of research and all that stuff. I was looking for a college that I could rodeo at Mm. and compete in college rodeo, but I also wanted a four-year university that I could just knock out the four years and graduate, which didn't end up happening anyway because I'm on my fifth year, but I'm graduating (laughs) this spring. Oh, good. Um, I did five. I'll confess that right here. (laughs) It took me five. Five years. That's been the average, you know? (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that's really what kind of brought me here and... um, during my first year here, I was kind of thinking about transferring to somewhere like I was going to leave the state. I was pretty set on like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go to Colorado State or go to a little bit more ag-based um, college somewhere. Mm-hmm. And um, I ended up staying, and then I became a part of the community when I started working at the bar because now I can't go anywhere without somebody recognizing me. Oh, you're the bartender from the timeout. So you go to Central, which is in Ellensburg, which is what, like 15 minutes from here? Mm -hmm. But you actually, when you came out here, you started living right away in Kittitas? Um, I did live in Ellensburg, but for a very short time. So I was like for the first year and a half or two years, and then I eventually moved out. My address is still Ellensburg, but I live out past Kittitas. It's like 15 minutes from here even. (laughs) I don't even have internet there. You know, it's one of those type places. So. Why? Why didn't you stay in town? Um, gross. <laughs> I wouldn't stay in town. I like being outside. And I have horses, too. I have horses, and I've got six cows here with myself. Um, myself I love my it horses. that you say staying in town is gross. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there's just the. it's just like your typical college student, you know, walking distance from the campus and yeah. things like that. And I don't, I don't really mean it that way, you know, but... Um, it's too confined. I'm out. I have. I'm renting uh, 25 acres with two other girls, and I have my two horses and my six cows, and um, I have access to an arena, and I can go rope whenever I want. So it's it's way better out here. I pay the price, but it's way better out here for so sure. I want to find out about this rodeo stuff too, because you oh. talked about being younger and mm-hmm. into the whole cowgirl thing. You wanted right. to continue that. Yes. What 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 do you do with that? So as far as rodeo goes, um, at the moment I'm riding a three year old, so she is a little slow on the draw when it comes to. Um, I mean, I'm still doing a little bit of roping on her, but she's a little young to be competing on. Um, but just this last spring, I sold one of my good horses that I was team roping and breakaway roping off of, and he was a bang up little horse, but mm. I had to let him go. 
And so I did that. But prior to selling him, I did a lot of um, team roping and breakaway roping and went to rodeos, mostly college rodeos and some small jackpots here and there and did quite a bit of uh, mounted shooting on him as well, mm-hmm. which has become a, a passion for me as well. It's just so much fun. It's like barrel racing, but with guns. Way better. <laughs> Way better. Everybody should give it a try. <laughs> so rodeo, I mean, for a lot of people, that's like, ooh. Rodeo, I think the sense is it's really unnecessary and it's abusive of animals and all these things. <laughs> What's your response to some of that? I mean, th- I guess what, one thing I should say, this is a real food, real people podcast. What does rodeo have to do with food? Yeah. Why is it even necessary? Well, I guess it's uh, more, I would say that rodeo is a little bit more of a showcase of the capabilities of your horse and the amount of training and practice. And I mean, the animals that we use, they're animals that love their job you know the the rough stock that's being bucked out i mean that's they're bred specifically to do that i mean you put them out in a field and just feed them you know i mean they're bred specifically for this job and it's not i mean calves too same thing bred to run it's still skills and a way of life connected with producing food though right absolutely like the beef world yeah, I mean, oh, real cowboys still yeah, exist absolutely, in this state, absolutely. right? Absolutely, especially in this valley. Um, back home, you know, you find more dairy farms over on the west side where I grew up. And here, people are renting um, or getting permits to put their cows out on um, public land. And there's a lot more acreage for people to push cows around. And it's more of a practical sense when you're talking about cowboying, like things like that, when you're going out and you're branding or you're um, vaccinating and things like that. It's, it's, it's crucial, you know? Well, even roping is about cattle health, right? People just think it's a show, which I mean, the rodeo stuff is a showcase of that skill. The root of it. yeah. Yeah. The root of it is a necessity. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's your favorite thing with rodeo? Um, probably team roping, probably team roping. Why? Um, well, so I headed for several years and this last, or this horse that I've got now, she's pretty small and I can't head on her. And so I'm really missing team roping and I'm really missing going into, yeah, it's just, it's kind of been tough, but, um, working through it and I think she'll be big enough that I could heal off of her, maybe not be a head horse, but, um, yeah, definitely, definitely team roping. You going to keep doing rodeo stuff after college? I intend to. I do. How do you keep doing that? I mean, do you have to be pro to keep going? You got to make money. <laughs> <laughs> um, your bank account has to support you. Uh, <laughs> no, um, even in town, there's a bunch of small jackpots that you can keep going to. And then you enter and like you pay your NPRA um NPRA or Pro West entries and things like that. The smaller, I mean, they're not smaller, but they're different regions. And you can, um, there's a little bit of flexibility. But in the Northwest, it's it's a it's a tough circuit to be in, in the Columbia River circuit. So, so other than keeping rodeoing, rodeoing, yes. kind of as a hobby or you know, maybe some pro stuff. Mm-hmm. What else are you planning to do once you get your degree here in a few months? So my ultimate goal is there's an overpopulation of feral horses down in southwestern United States in general, and it's actually encroaching on the Pacific Northwest as well. 
And um, I don't intend to work for the government as suggested by professors. Oh, you should work for the BLM or, oh, you mm -hmm. should work for the Forest Service or DNR. And um, granted, those jobs are great and I'm sure of it, but they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. They're caught up in so many different lawsuits from other advocacy groups that are just half of their budget is tied up in fighting lawsuits. So a lot of that is not um, making any progress. So things that are making progress are research on um, different um, sterilization ideas or pregnant or birth control, um, like PZP is a, is a current thing. I'm going on down there, but they are... To keep feral horses from reproducing. Reproducing, right. So what, what's a feral horse? Explain what that really looks like in the real world. So I... It's... Technically, they're called wild horses. Right. And that's a legal term. It's not a... It's, it's not because they're actually wild, because every horse that is on that range is of domestic descent. So the species, the actual species of them is of domestic descent. And so there are no wild horses. The only wild horse that there is is in um, Mongolia, and it's called the Przewalski's horse. And it's like three feet tall, and just this tiny little horse that's the only wild horse in, um, that's in existence right now. And so when I refer to feral horses, it's kind of like a negative term against the law that's um, the Wild Horse and Burrow Act of 1970. Mm. And so um, that needs to be changed. <laughs> I've never heard of any of this stuff. This really? Is so, this okay. is so cool. Oh, well, I wish I could have told Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So things along those lines, things need to be changed. And I'm not advocating for them to be... Um, removed or exterminated from the rangeland at all because there's definitely um you know a, a history behind them and they're part of the west and how the spaniards and the old wild west i mean it was such a short time in, in history that it just kind of people want to preserve it that way you know mm -hmm. so uh -huh. so you want to help preserve that or you want to help those and like what really is your like dream outcome here with with this issue? Oh, it's a pretty controversial topic. So I feel mm. as though um, the, the population doubles every four years. Wow. And so something needs to be done, whether that is sterilization of mares or people need to quit breeding horses and only adopt feral horses. I'm not going to make that call because yeah. I... I buy expensive horses that, you know, that are, you know, they're well-bred and things yeah. like that. They're bred for what I do. And um, so it's hard to say that there's one solution to it. Um, I would say conserving, not preserving, because um, preserving what we have out there is not going to be sustainable for the rangeland, the people that use it, the cattle that are going to be put out on it. Um, just, yeah. I. How did you get into this issue? Like, what? how did it catch your passion? I spent some time in Utah, saw some feral horses, talked to some locals in the area about how they felt about it, and then um, they very strongly wanted, wanted them removed. And... Um, 
kind of where I grew up, a lot of people were buying horses from slaughter to take up to Canada or Mexico or things like that. So it was just kind of not something that was totally new to me because I'd always kind of been around it because a stock contractor, oh, he knew somebody and somebody knew somebody, oh, that horsey, you know, something like that. And um, it's illegal to do that, by the way. Mm. And so it's just kind of something that struck me as a problem that needs to be addressed. And yeah. it needs to be addressed in a fashion that encourages learning. Mm. So the biggest controversy between the thing is it, a lot of the people that are fighting for the rights of the horses are, um, they've never seen a horse. They've never pet a horse. They're like, oh, they're just so beautiful. They think of like black beauty or right. things like that. They don't think of a horse that is essentially starving itself out because there's nothing for it to eat on the range. There's no water. We're in a drought. There's nothing there for it. It starves. That's not humane. No, exactly. So what? it's the balance between the two and like closing the gap um, in the knowledge. I mean... There's, it could go on forever. I could. <laughs> so what did you study in college? What's your degree going to be? Um, environmental resource geography with a certification in natural resource management and a certification in geospatial information systems. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. So what kind of stuff are you doing academically then to get that kind of degree? What are you studying? What are you learning? Um, it's kind of like a hybrid of like... Um, Different, uh, different biologies, different chemistries, different geology, geography, climatology. That's a class that I'm taking right now. That's kind of kicking my butt. But um, it's kind of just a, a broad mixture of everything that you would find in an environment um, from resources to weathers that impact the resources and the actions of industries and it's just all encompassed water resource is just a it's a big broad bs <laughs> <laughs> you mean bachelor of science yes that's exactly what oh, i meant okay okay all right got it <laughs> what um earlier we were talking and you're like yeah you're kind of planning on leaving the state maybe not forever yeah why do you want to leave Washington other than this horse thing? Um, why, are you like done with Washington or what? Well, as much as I love Washington, I've spent a fair amount of time up in the mountains in the Cascades at Mount Rainier. And um, it's a beautiful state. You get a little bit of everything from volcanoes to rainforest to desert to the ocean. It's a beautiful state. I do love it. But um, I have been impacted by, um, as I mentioned once before, kind of politics the mm. prices and the people mm. so why is that changing in washington do you think um i would say the growth of urban population what does that do to farming here minimizes it it go i mean the growth of seattle i mean they're moving outward we're getting people here in kittitas county um the population, I mean, you'll find a lot of people coming from Seattle. They're a doctor from Seattle, and they have a house in Ellensburg, and they commute every day because it's easier to commute from Ellensburg than it is from Olympia, you know. So, um, and wow. then from them moving here, that changes completely the dynamic of every, I mean, yeah, the political dynamic is completely altered, not only from 
the expansion of urban areas, but also from the college as well. So mm. I would. Yeah. What are some of the pressures on farming? What, what happens with these, with different people in the mix, like you're describing? Uh, development of farmland, um, the minimizing of all this farmland that, I mean, this valley is number one, number two, top hay export in the country. And uh, we were getting all these people from Seattle. Oh yeah, we've got this nice thirty or thirty acre lot, and we're we're gonna develop it. Or you know, if, even if they get their hands on some more expensive, bigger hay fields, you know, they're not gonna sit on it. They're not gonna continue farming it. They're that's that's their goal. Oh, Ellensburg is beautiful. Yeah, let's move there. It's only an hour and a half, two hours from Seattle. But I thought you're in college, basically in kind of an environmental program. Right. Shouldn't you be caring about the environment? This is why my department doesn't like me. <laughs> They're like, oh, darn, you got Lydia in your class this time? Oh, I'm so sorry. She sits up front and raises her hand, has something to say about everything. <laughs> um, yeah, it definitely um, is a struggle. Especially, well, in my department, they do a pretty good job of keeping the balance between politics and mm-hmm. um they're relatively unbiased but um yeah there's definitely something that needs to be done as far as conservation of the farmland in this valley especially yeah what what needs to be done to protect the environment here in, in washington from your vantage point studying this academically oh that is a, that's a tricky question because I mean, I mean that, so, some people are saying farming isn't good for the environment, and that's one of the issues that they want to look at. Should we be doing farming or doing farming the way that we're doing it here in the state? Well, I would start off with saying farmers are stewards of the land. <laughs> um, it doesn't, I mean, regardless of whether a farmer's out to make money or not, it's um, if they don't take care of their land, if they're not rotating crops, if they're not... Um, treating the land if they're not replenishing nutrients that they've taken out by planting this specific crop or something along that line those lines um they it'll affect their crop in in the long run and their property in the long run and i mean i experienced that growing up over on the west side we grew um hay on an old um, tree farm and so tree farms are very acidic and so we had to we always did chicken manure was the most common thing in our area. So to kind of balance that out and kind of bring up the pH levels, um, definitely have to be proactive in that, I guess. Proactive in how you're treating the land because in the long run, it's going to affect how your crops are going to turn out, how much you're going to yield, what are, what, it's, what are the prices going to be like, you know. Yeah, in your farming background, how much attention how much time have you spent on the whole soil health issue i mean that's what you're touching on there right oh a stupid amount (laughs) we grew our own um we had haylage we were feeding haylage so Mm -hmm. uh, we grew on haylage and we had barley as well that we ground up and mixed with cracked corn and yeah what's the future for your family's farm so at this time both of my parents are retired and they're um they got out of dairying the year that I moved to college. And I have to say that that's a little heartbreaking because I felt like I was responsible for it. Um, no matter how many times they'll tell me, 
no, no, you need to go, like, go do what you need to do or type thing. And, um, but the farm is still being ran. It's being leased out by a younger um, dairy farmer, and he's running um, our farm as an organic dairy as well as two other dairy farms. One other is also organic and the other is conventional. Mm. Um, so he's keeping that going, which is impressive because that's three dairies. I don't know if I could, yeah. <laughs> let alone one, but I'm sure, I mean, he's got quite a bit of hired hands, but. How did the whole organic thing go? What did you think of that? How did your parents make that work? Um, so when we got into it, we were kind of ahead of the curve. So it was kind of before everybody was like, oh, go organic. It was before all of that. And so when we were in it, it was it was good for our family and we were doing well. And um, it, it was a really long process. So I have to tell you, we had to get our land certified that we were making the hay on, which is not in the same location as where our dairy was. And so just getting that certified and then we'd have to fence off our fences like six feet in because our neighbors sprayed their whatever Mm. you know and so getting the cows certified getting the land certified it was just quite the process um i think it was like six years maybe before we could become certified is organic better at least i guess in dairy terms because that's what you've experienced firsthand oh in dairy terms i mean it's a nice idea, I guess, but um, as far as the quality of milk being produced, I would argue that it is probably on the same playing field. Um, organic milk, conventional milk. I mean, I always drink it raw, so I don't, I don't know what y'all are drinking at the store. <laughs> no, I'm teasing, but I, I mean, I... We did always drink it raw. It was just, you know, Out of the tank. Was, yeah, scrape the cream off the top and put it in your coffee <laughs> in the morning after it separates out. It was, like I said, it was no better like, uh, no better childhood. <laughs> What's been the hardest thing with growing up a farm kid and getting to this point where you are now? The hardest thing? I would say probably just a difference in like my peers. So I don't really identify very easily with other 23-year-old girls in my, like, in classes at school. Like, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to this party. And I'm like, oh, cool, I'm going home to ride my horse type thing. You know, like, I don't, I don't, I wasn't really, yeah, I feel like I'm a little bit older than my actual age. And I think that's because I was raised in this fashion that led me to be more mature and, uh, I don't know. I don't want to sound conceited when I say those <laughs> things, but it's like, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't identify very easily with people my age because of the differences in our childhood upbringings. And it's just, uh, it's very strange to me too, because I don't, I don't know where they're coming from. You know, they did totally different things when they were growing up. They got to travel when they were young. <laughs> they got to leave the farm. I'm teasing, but yeah, <laughs> no, I know how that is. I grew up on a red raspberry farm, so oh yes, summertime was not a time for vacation no. like for everybody else. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for opening up and sharing your story. Best of luck yes, to you, you on what you're doing next. You ever think about getting back into actual farming, being a farmer yourself? Yes, I I miss it. I yeah, I definitely have considered it, especially with this most recent starting up a dairy thing. And my dad's dream has always been to, you know, um, bottle and sell organic raw milk. And um, 
I don't know, I guess it kind of rubbed off on me too because I just think that would be so cool to have your own dairy and then have the same store on the same place and people would come to your farm and you could give them farm tours and kind of educate them about where your milk comes from and no, chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows and, you know, something yeah. something like that. Yeah, it's definitely a fantasy, but maybe someday. I, I plan on having my own garden and greenhouse and my own cows. I'll be damned if I'm not drinking raw milk out of the tank when I'm settled or something. <laughs> well, good luck to you. And uh, again, really appreciate you being willing to share your story here with this random sorry, guy, it's a long me, one. <laughs> that just showed up at here at the, the Time Out Time Out Saloon, Saloon in, in Kittitas, Washington. Yep. Yep. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. You know, I'm always amazed by the things that people do talk about, that they know, that they're involved with. And one of those was the whole feral horse thing. I didn't know anything about that. And and I had no idea that Lydia was involved with anything like that. So when she brought that up, I was like, wow. I And now I need to do a little bit more research about well, what is that all about that's kind of crazy it was really cool to hear her story and hear about her family i hope for her sake you can hear right there at the end where she you could tell that she still wants to be part of that farming world and i hope she can find the right place and time to do that thank you again for being with us here on the podcast and hopefully again that you're you're staying safe and, and healthy out there um, if you're self-isolating, self-quarantining, whatever the case might be with this crazy world that we're in right now, um, yeah, you've got some time. Could catch up on some back episodes. Uh, you can find all of those at realfoodrealpeople.org or on your favorite podcast platform. So make sure to check it out. And also follow us on Instagram. Uh, follow us on Facebook and we're on Twitter as well. I uh, try to share stuff there as much as I can. I've been able to do a little bit more of that lately with everything that's going on. And and hopefully I can keep that up my, with my busy schedule. Sometimes I forget to share, oh, hey, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm at. So I'm trying to be better about that. And we definitely appreciate you subscribing and supporting the podcast every week. And like I said at the beginning, we appreciate you paying attention to where your food comes from. And of course, with this podcast, it's so important who your food comes from uh, with everything going on in the world right now i think we're more and more focused on our food and are we going to be able to get it and where you know who's who's producing it? how far away is it from me uh and and that's why these stories are such a window into the food production that's happening in our backyard and here in our own state it's just so so important right now and i think this time with everything that's changing with our society and with our economy right now uh, with this virus and other things that are going on i think it's bringing that focus back to where it needs to be on how we sustain ourselves how sustainable our lives are right here at home in washington so thank you for being with us on the real food real people podcast the Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. Find them online at savefamilyfarming.org.